Welcome for Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 38 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 20th of October. And Leon, this week we're chatting with Marcello Silvia. That's right. Uh, he's going to be talking to us all about digital transformation scores. That's a diagnostic tool that he's developed that helps organisations understand where they sit in the digital maturity spectrum and against their corporate competitors. Produces very good information where people are doing a digital transformation. That's right, yes. Which of course is essential for business these days. After that we have a great interview with economist Saul Eslake. That's right, he's going to be talking to us all about the productivity's recommendations to change the GST carve up and what that means. Now let's listen to Marcello Silvia and uh, his theories. Marcelo, your company deals with digital transformation, which apparently is a new thing. What is it and why is it important? Look, it's really important um, because regardless of um, the size of a business, most businesses are going through some form of disruption. Now, that disruption has been, I guess, caused by new entrants to different markets and technology is underpinning or facilitating those new business models. So whether you're Google, Facebook or the account down the road, you're experiencing some form of um, transformation and disruption. That raises an interesting question, Marcelo, that, uh, I mean, a lot of companies approach it as an IT issue, but it seems to be very much a business model issue. Yeah, that's a great great question because up until now, according to Accenture and McKinsey's, 70 to 85% of companies that undertake transformation projects fail, and they fail for the very reason that um, it's treated as an IT issue, not a not a people and culture issue. So our company has done um, extensive research and extensive testing, which shows that without strong people and culture, the rest of the um, the key dimensions will fail and and ultimately, um, you know, those projects will fail as well. So you've had or you consulted a team of experts from uh, way up in the business uh, sphere. Uh, tell us about that, how you got uh, developed. Yeah, basically, we'd, we'd been testing our hypothesis uh, internally for around 12 months. And my my statistician and, and head researcher suggested that we take it to uh, a team of experts because then it won't then the results or, or the the approach wouldn't be seen as too subjective so what we did was um, we approached folks um, across APAC which includes Australia um, from you know leading brands leading disrupting um, technology brands like um, Facebook Google um, Yahoo to more um, smaller operations as well with one-man bands and what we did was we, we tested the notion and we put it to those experts and we wanted to find out what they thought was imperative or important around digital transformation. So we tested our four key dimensions, which um, are people and culture, a strategy, technology and, and platforms and measurement. So, you know, is it a financial impact? Is it a customer experience impact? What are key measurement um, uh, elements that uh, companies look for when they, they're tracking and measuring digital transformation? So this would also include um, the collection of data and its analysis, wouldn't it? Yeah, correct. So the, the, the two key things that our research and our testing showed that, um, one, you need a good structure in terms of an organisation with leadership, digital competency. Um, but also what was really ringing through the research and the findings was that all the businesses we interviewed and, and surveyed 
was that they placed uh, a customer's first strategy as one of the important um, strategic elements. And the only way to effectively execute a customer first strategy was with a, um, a, a solid data strategy. And that answers, I guess, part of your question there. So that would mean, wouldn't it, that you would need to have people there who are very much across data? Absolutely, absolutely. And what we do is with my um, recruitment partners, um, and we'll talk about how I collect data in a moment, but with my recruitment partners, um, we identify 30 to 40 key roles within an organisation to execute um, transformation strategies. And the key elements there are the data people and the data experts. So you're talking anything from data scientists to data analysts and to data wranglers. So data is at the heart of everything that uh, organizations do, given the priority around um, executing a customer first strategy. Which would suggest that uh, existing people there would need to be uh, trained in data analysis as well. Well, the trend is that the majority of companies that we speak to predate the internet or their tech technology boom. So those kind of um, capabilities or skill sets aren't uh, existing within organisations. Therefore, we're seeing a massive hiring boom accord, uh, um, happening. And we're also, as a result of that hiring boom, we're seeing a skill shortage where de- uh, demand is out, outstripping supply, I guess, and, and data scientists and, and data experts are commanding really healthy salaries in this day and age. Company culture can be archaic and whatnot, and this involves great change. What are some of the problems that they're encountering? Yeah, so what, 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 what we've found from our analysis and, and um, research is that, the, as I said earlier, the majority of companies that predate the technology boom don't possess that profile of leadership where they've had vast digital or technology experience. So what we're seeing is a big shift in bringing in folks that will bring that expertise. So at a board level, we're now seeing a major shift in, in including new directors that have had technology experience. And then what and what we've also seen as well at, at a senior management layer, we're seeing a lot of movement. Um, a good example of that in Australia is ANZ recently hired or 16 or 18 months ago, uh, Miley Carnegie, who used to be the MD of Google, ANZ poached her and brought her on as the head of e-banking. That's a really strong signal or show of intent from ANZ that they're serious about digital and making sure it becomes an intrinsic part of their DNA and their culture. Tell me, which companies and which sectors would it be, would this be important in or is it important across all sectors? It's important across all sectors. Um, you know, the example I just gave then around banking finance, they're, they're, they were one of the first to pivot and actually recognise that they needed to change. For example, I helped launch ING Direct in the early 2000s and that was a good uh, use case that really showed that new entrants could really disrupt incumbents and you've seen that phenomenon happening across everything from um, media, as you guys have seen, that's been heavily disrupted to taxing. And you'll see that even more with AI and the development of um, more sort of automated services in the customer service area. Hiring all these experts and whatnot is very expensive. What happens to the bottom line of these companies? Is the move to digital transformation profitable? It's not initially, but you know, it's, it's a really tricky um, proposition in terms of managing existing revenue 
revenue streams and profit streams, and then also having a concurrent strategy to moving to more digitized uh, revenue and business models. So it's really important that those companies that are undertaking that transition bring in um, really capable senior managers and leaders to really uh, manage that, I guess, disruption. Uh, that would suggest, though, you, you'd need big changes at the board level too to embrace that sort of change. Absolutely. You need you need to bring talent and fresh eyes that can really operate within a high-change, fast-paced environment. If you look at, you know, that, that typically is possessed with folks that have worked for um, digital startup or digital businesses or digital only businesses that don't have legacy issues. And what we're also seeing, there's more of a prominent role from people and culture and HR executives because they're really at, at, at the core of what's happening culturally. So we're seeing that a lot of uh, transformation uh, initiatives are managed, co-managed by the CEO and the MD with close partnership and consultation with the HR department. So tell me, have you seen any sort of good examples of companies doing this or any any standout leaders in this area or is there still some way to go? Yeah, look, in Australia, there's some way to go. I think, um, you know, Australia has been isolated to some degree from digital disruption because, you know, we've, we've had duopolies and that that competitive edge has been existing for a while, but now we're seeing in Australia that because of the likes of Amazon, that you know traditional uh, retailers will now have to transform. But at the same stage, you know, in the US, Europe, etc., we're seeing um, transformation be far more prevalent, and therefore they've had to, um, I guess react and pivot um, sooner than Australian businesses have. But Australia is now at the, you know, experiencing um, that sort of level of change and um, the likes of, I recently wrote a blog piece on L'Oreal, how they've, how they've managed um, digital transformation. They possess that profile of being, you know, pre-internet. The other standout, I guess, in my eyes has been Heineken. They've done an amazing job in terms of transforming and, and becoming more digitally focused, especially with their challenge around millennials not wanting to drink beer. So they've, they've had to pivot and really sort of reposition their whole beer offering and have done a really good job. Final question, how much of this is going to bring in automation into uh, company operations? Yeah, look, that's a great question. Um, it really depends. You know, there's two key areas where automation comes in and one, one, the first area is operationally. How can companies become more efficient and minimise wastage? How can technology help facilitate that? And then the other area is around customer service. And that's an area that a lot of governments in particular are concerned about because there's, you know, the hot topic at the moment is all around AI and what potential damage that could do to existing jobs. Um, a good example of that are call centres. What would happen to a city like Geelong if, you know, AI took over and, and many jobs were lost and, and many, you know, um, call centres were to shut down? What not only business impact would that have, but societal impact and you know and businesses are really concerned that they don't have a contingency plan to deal with that that kind of disruption so it really depends in the two areas there's no black and white answer to that every industry and category is different but they will be impacted from an operational and a, and a customer strategy perspective marcelo thank you very much for your time and your insights it's been fascinating likewise gents and hopefully i was able to help so very interesting leon 
I think so. I think well, this is going to be the big trend now. I think every business now has to assess themselves digitally and how well they're prepared, how they can compete in that marketplace. The digital age is launched, but it's still only in a very early stage, and we're going to get more and more automation, more and more uh, machine learning, and things like that. And businesses need to know what's coming. Yeah, indeed. And now Saul Lake. So it's like the Productivity Commission has given recommendations for a carve-up of the GST. That's all going to be thrashed out by the uh, state governments and the government uh, later on this month. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, Productivity Commission has presented a report on the way in which the revenue from the GST is carved up among the states and territories on the recommendations of the Commonwealth Grants Commission. And this report, which is the third that's been published in the last 15 years or so into the GST revenue sharing formula has been instigated by the federal government in response to sustained pressure from Western Australia based on what Western Australians believe is an unfair treatment of their state in the carve-up of the revenue from the GST. That's worth remembering here that the Commonwealth Grants Commission was originally established in 1933 after Western Australia Australians voted two to one in a referendum to secede from the Commonwealth of Australia because of grievances that they had felt, grievances which personally I think were legitimate, about the way in which Western Australia had been treated by the Federation. At Federation Victoria, the dominant colony at the time, in effect imposed its economic model of high, protect, high tariffs protecting labour-intensive industries rewarded on the basis of what we came to know as the Arbitration Commission on the rest of Australia. And that was significantly disadvantageous for Western Australia in particular, which didn't have any of the industries that were protected under Australia's regime of very high tariffs. So the Grants Commission was established to assess the case for assistance to Western Australia and South Australia Queensland and Tasmania for additional assistance. And from the early 1930s until the 1990s, Western Australia, much more often than not, was a beneficiary of the recommendations made by the Grants Commission as to how revenue from the Commonwealth to the states and territories should be carved up among them. More recently, Western Australia has become what it and New South Wales and Victoria like to call a donor state. That is, they see themselves as putting more into the pot of revenue that's carved up among the states than they get out of it. And from one perspective, that's true. Western Australia now gets a smaller share of the GST revenue compared to or relative to its share of Australia's population than any state or territory has ever received in the past. I think that's unfair. But there is a reason for it, and that is that thanks to the mining boom, Western Australia has become richer than the rest of Australia by a margin that has no precedent in Australia's history. In recent years, Western Australia's per capita growth product, which is a broad measure of their economic performance, has been between 40 and 50 percent higher uh, per head of population than the rest of Australia. In the past, when New South Wales or Victoria have been the richest states in Australia by this measure, they've never been more than, say, 15 or 20 percent richer than the rest of the country in terms of per capita gross product. So uh, Western Australia's position under the long-standing arrangements 
by which GST revenue is carved up among states and territories is unusual only because Western Australia has become unusually rich as a result of the commodities boom. And as is often the case when people become very rich and are expected by the taxation system to put more in than they get out, uh, they're complaining about that. But Western Australia is politically important. It has 15 seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, 10 or 11 of those are currently held by the federal coalition. And based on the results of the most recent state election in March, which saw the Liberal government led by Colin Barnett lose in something approximating a landslide to the Labor Party, the Liberals stand to lose perhaps half a dozen of the seats they currently hold in Western Australia, including seats held by some potential future very senior leaders of the coalition at the federal level. Uh, Conversely, of course, the Labor Party also wants to and needs to win seats in Western Australia if it's to become the government at the next federal election. So both sides of politics appear to be uh, succumbing to pressure from Western Australia to change these long-standing arrangements in ways that would benefit Western Australia, but which can only do so by taking money off other states and territories because it's a zero-sum game. The Productivity Commission has reviewed all of this and have rejected many of the arguments put forward by Western Australia and the other two large states, New South Wales and Victoria. In particular, they defend the objective of enabling the fiscally weaker states to provide goods and services to their citizens of similar standard to those across the country as a whole, although they suggest that perhaps... Australia doesn't need to go as far as it does in seeking to achieve perfect equality in the fiscal capacities of the states. But they reject Western Australia, New South Wales and Victoria's demand for an equal per capita distribution of the revenue from the GST and instead suggest a number of alternative, less ambitious ways of carving the revenue up among states and territories. And the one to which they seem most inclined at the moment is the suggestion that instead of raising all states and territories' fiscal capacity up to that of the strongest, which in recent years has been Western Australia, they should instead seek to raise the fiscal capacity of the weakest states to the second strongest state, which is currently New South Wales. That would still see Western Australia gain in excess of $3 billion a year at the expense of other states, but it wouldn't be as dramatic and negative, especially for the smaller states, as a move to an equal per capita distribution of GS revenues as sought by Western Australia, New South Wales and Victoria would be. Nonetheless, as you say, it's a zero-sum game and what Western Australia would be gaining, they'd be getting at the expense of other states. I mean, is this right? And where do you see this happening? Where do you see this travelling? Well, I don't believe it is right. I can understand why Western Australians feel aggrieved that they are getting what they consider to be a poor return from the carving up of the GST. In that sense, they're in a similar position to the 3% of Australians who are in the top personal income tax bracket, that they recognise they're putting a lot more into the pot than they're drawing out of it. And like many people in that position, they think there's something unfair about that. Uh, Other states and territories 
would similarly feel aggrieved about arrangements which required them to give up revenue so that the richest state in the country can have more of it than it already does. The Productivity Commission does, I think, more legitimately draw attention to the potential which the system of carving up revenue among the states uh, provides for adverse incentives to undertake worthwhile tax reforms. For example, they point out that if, say, New South Wales were to, as many urge that it should, replace stamp duties with a more broadly based land tax, it would lose a lot of the revenue that it might otherwise generate from a reform like that to other states through the horizontal fiscal equalisation arrangements, unless all other states emulated what New South Wales does. And in that sense... So the Productivity Commission argues the existing system acts as a disincentive to worthwhile tax reform. The Productivity Commission also considers the argument that's been put by the federal government and some other states that the existing system provides perverse incentives to states, particularly those who do well out of the existing arrangements, to forego the exploitation of mineral reserves or the pursuit of other economic reforms that might boost not only state income, but national income. The Productivity Commission can't find any evidence that this actually has happened in practice, but they say that the absence of evidence for this having occurred in practice isn't the same thing as uh, an absence of any evidence that it could. I'm not sure that's an entirely persuasive argument, but it's the one that seems to have been picked up by the federal government in particular as a reason for giving Western Australia at least some of what it wants. Ultimately, this does come down to the recognition, however, that unless the federal government's prepared to put additional money on the table, this is a zero-sum game. And anything that works to the advantage of one state or a number of states can only be at the expense of other states. And it will be impossible to get unanimous agreement among the states and territories as to uh, any changes that don't involve additional Commonwealth money being put on the table. And even in those circumstances, states which might initially stand to benefit from additional Commonwealth money, perhaps as compensation for changes that would otherwise disadvantage them, will be very suspicious that any additional Commonwealth money could have a very short shelf life. So in other words, the only way this issue can be resolved would be for the federal government to put money on the table. Well, that's right. And that's what the Productivity Commission recognises, whilst also recognising that no state could legitimately be confident that any Commonwealth money that was on offer would remain on the table as part of the system indefinitely, but would instead be at significant risk of being curtailed whenever the federal government ran into budgetary problems of its own. And arguably, since the federal government does have a significant budgetary problem at the moment, uh, running budget deficits and increasing the level of federal debt, the Productivity Commission recognises that it's pretty unlikely that the federal government would put additional money on the table. So uh, although the Productivity Commission proposes a number of alternatives in this draft report, and no doubt by the time their final report is published towards the end of January next year, uh, it's going still to be very difficult to come down to any set of changes that all states and territories are going to agree on. And 
In effect, the Productivity Commission is saying to the federal government, you're going to have to decide which group of Australians you're most willing to offend politically. So this is going to be a very, very fascinating meeting and we can't really see what the solution's going to be. Not if there are to be changes. As I say, my view is that the system works fairly well. Uh, There are improvements that can be made, as the Productivity Commission notes, to the transparency of the way in which the shares of the different states and territories are calculated. The Grants Commission itself could do more, as the Productivity Commission recommends, to promote greater understanding and awareness of how the system operates and what it is meant to achieve. And the system could certainly be made less complex than it currently is. They're all reforms that, in my view, are worth pursuing. But I would also very strongly argue that the existing system is something that serves the ultimate goal of ensuring that no matter where they live, Australians have access to similar standards of state-type public services, such as schools, hospitals, police, roads, railways, and the like. And that's something that I think is part of what makes Australia the country it is. And that if we didn't have arrangements like this, the differences, the inequalities between people based on where they live would be much greater than they are today. We would look more like the United States than we currently do. And I don't think that's what Australians want. So, Leslie, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure as always. Thank you, Leo. So how do you look at that, Leon? Well, as Saul says, it's a big, big mess and it's going to be very hard to see how the government's going to get out of this without putting some money on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And as usual, it's uh, with the uh, parliament at the moment, it's mostly smoke and mirrors. That's right. So now the news, what's in there? Well, Gary, President Donald Trump is looking at five candidates to chair the US Federal Reserve and he plans to pick one of them within the next few weeks. It'd be one of the most important economic decisions he'll make because the Fed has the role of safeguarding the US economy and it's looked upon as a source of global financial stability. Now the short list of names the President reviewing are former Fed Governor Kevin Walsh, Stanford University economist John Taylor, current Fed Governor Jerome Powell, National Economic Council Director Gary Conn, and the current chair, Janet Yellen. He's already interviewed some of the candidates, and Taylor, 70, reportedly made a good impression on the president after an hour-long interview at the White House last week. And he plans to interview Yellen in the next few days, and her term ends in February. And Bloomberg reports that his selection will be announced before he leaves on November the 3rd for an 11-day trip to Asia and Hawaii. And this will be one of the biggest domestic decisions Trump makes, which is why there's a good deal of uh, nervousness about it in Washington. Yes, in the market, there's a lot of anticipation in the market about it. Well, the problem, of course, is Trump's highly egoistic and egocentric, and he's likely to decide the appointment on the basis of what he sees as the appointee's loyalty to him. Well, let's just watch that space. It's going to be very interesting to watch. But uh, I would say London to a brick, Janet Yellen is not going to get it. I would think not. No, she's much more likely to stand up to him. That's right. Now, Australian house prices have soared a mind-boggling 6,556% since the early 1960s, according to the Bank of International Settlements. According to the BIS report, looking at house prices increases around the world, Australia's house prices have been increasing at an average of 8.1% per year over a 55-year period. And according to the report, the price upswings lasted on average 
13 years, and the longest one was in Australia, which is still continuing after half a century, and it's setting a world record. And their upswings on average lasted, as I said, 13 years. The report analysed 47 advanced and emerging market economies, and it shows that Australia has had among the highest average annual rises in property prices around the world. The only countries ahead of it are Spain, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Italy and Ireland. And the BIS figures even put Australia well ahead of the United States, where house prices increased 1,332% over 47 years, rising at an average annual rate of 7%. And the report also found that short-term interest rates are a surprisingly important driver of house prices, particularly outside the US, and revealed that downswings accounted for only 8% of the advanced economy sample and lasted on average five years. Yeah, and Citibank's just expressed the thought that Australia's level of household debt puts it into the high-risk category. The debt's about 193%, which is amazing. The Reserve Bank of Australia has reminded investors that any change in monetary policy will depend on domestic economic conditions and not on central banks overseas raising interest rates. In the minutes of its October meeting, released on Tuesday, the RBA said there was no need to follow what overseas central banks were doing. And it said in the RBA's words, moves towards higher interest rates in other economies were a welcome development but did not have mechanical implications for the setting of policy in Australia. Now, central banks in the US and Canada have raised rates. The Bank of England has flagged doing the same. Now, the RBA said any changes in interest rates in Australia would depend on developments in domestic economic conditions, including inflation and wages growth, which at the moment are subdued. And the RBA signalled there were no near-term plans to raise interest rates about 1.5% with slow growth in real wages and high levels of household debt, in their words, likely to be constraining influences. So it looks like we're still waiting for the uh, housing bubble to pop. But we can expect interest rates rates to remain at 1.5% for the time being. Now, rising energy prices are hitting the bottom line of food and energy companies and could put some either out of business or force them to relocate offshore. A report from the Australian Food and Grocery Council shows massive energy cost increases could see many food and grocery companies move overseas. And the release of the report comes in the same week the government has concluded its protracted response to the energy review co-authored by Chief Scientist Dr Alan Finkel and comes up with a new energy blueprint. And this also coincides with the release of a report by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission showing that soaring energy costs were putting the future of many businesses on the line. The ACCC report attributed the rising energy prices to what they call significant increases in network costs for all states other than South Australia, that is, building the lines. And the ACCC report does not look at the issue of a clean energy target. Nothing really firm and there's still coal in the mix and that means probably uh, prices will go up rather than down. This coincides with the Coalition Party Room this week approving a new energy policy after meeting in Canberra. The Party Room actually dumped the clean energy target recommended by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, which would have boosted the amount of renewable energy in the mix to 42%. Under the Coalition's blueprint, renewable energy will make up less than 40% of the nation's power mix by 2038, and it was early approved by Cabinet, the wider Ministry, and the Backbench Energy Committee. The government claims a plan will save households on average $115 a year by requiring energy retailers to source a certain percentage of low emissions and dispatchable power. However, Australian Energy Market Commission Chair John Pearce told Sky News there are different modelling scenarios and Sky News has reported one model that saves families just $25 a year in 2020. That's about 50 cents a week, Gary. Well, the best estimate so far uh, is, what, 100 bucks a year? Nothing. Nothing. Now, under the uh, strategy, uh, energy companies will be required to guarantee supply from sufficient baseload power, while beyond 2020, subsidies for renewable energy will be phased out, and the current renewable energy target will end in 2020, 
with the government arguing that clean energy will be able to stand on its own two feet by them. Now, what was interesting was that opposition climate change spokesman Mark Butler said it was extraordinary the government had adopted a national energy policy without any economic modelling, without any regulatory impact statement. And that, he says, means there are no guarantees. And you can cheat a good deal of responsibility for that very serious situation to Tony Abbott's rage and wrecking and the indecision and the battle for political influence in Parliament. That's right. You know, Indeed. Turnbull might have a policy, but not out of the woods yet. No, no, no. Now, US regulators have charged Rio Tinto and two former executives, including its ex-chief executive Tom Albanese, with fraud over the company's handling of the disastrous $3.7 billion coal deal in Africa. In its complaint filed in Manhattan... The Security and Exchange Commission accused Rio, Albanese and then Chief Financial Officer Guy Elliott of trying to hide or delay disclosure around the deteriorating nature of the 2011 Mozambique investment made when Rio acquired ASIC-listed company Riversdale Mining in 2011, just when the mining boom was coming to an end. And the SEC has alleged that Mr Albanese and Mr Elliott failed to follow accounting standards and company policies to accurately value and record its assets. And Rio, Mr Albanese and Mr Elliott will be charged with violations the anti-fraud reporting, books and records and internal controls provision of federal securities laws. Now, Rio ended up booking $3 billion of impairment charges on the deal, which it blamed on logistical challenges transporting coal over a distance of 600 kilometres from the Tahiti province of Mozambique to the coastline. And in the end, Rio sold the assets for $50 million in an episode that cost Mr Albanese his job. The allegation is they tried to hide how bad it was. This is very, very serious when you have the SEC filing this. Now, the Turnbull government has appointed former Goldman Sachs banker and commission member of the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission, James Shipton, to replace Greg Medcraft as head of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. His appointment came after Credit Suisse Australia Chairman John O'Sullivan pulled out of the race, citing Labor's personal attacks as a long-time Liberal donor and him having close links to the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Mr Shipton who'd also worked at Goldman Sachs as a managing director and Goldman's Asia executive officer, has been appointed for five years. The current deputy chair, Peter Kell, will be the acting chairman from the time Mr Medcraft's term ends on November the 12th to when Mr Shipton commences in February. And Mr Shipton comes to the position when ASIC is running a major rate-rigging case against the banks. And he's a lawyer at Harvard, and he's also the son of former Liberal Higgins MP, Roger Shipton. It's interesting, Med- Medcraft did a great job. That's right. He yeah. really did. He changed the culture of... Uh, of ASIC. That's right. So it'll be interesting to see what Shipton does. Indeed. Certainly, I think he'll follow on Medcraft's lead. Now, another interesting appointment. Former New Zealand Prime Minister John Key has been appointed Chairman of ANZ New Zealand. Mr Key, who takes on the role next year, will replace current Chair John Judge, who's due to retire in January. Mr Judge had been on the board since 2008 and Chair since 2012. Now, Sir John started his career in banking and finance in New Zealand before he headed overseas, where he became Head of Global Foreign Exchange with Merrill Lynch, and he also served on the Foreign Exchange Committee of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And he's also done a jolly good job with New Zealand's economy, one of the best in the world. So that'll be a very interesting appointment. Now, German supermarket giant Kaufland is advertising for key positions in Australia as it steps up its move into Australia's $90 billion grocery sector, joining Aldi, Costco and Amazon as major industry disruptors. Kaufland, which is privately owned by the world's fourth largest retailer, the Schwartz Group, posted ads on Seek 
looking for property developers to negotiate and finalize suitable property development sites for future Kaufland retail stores. That's in their words. It's also looking for a head of business intelligence to, in their words, create and support a retail business intelligence team that can empower Kaufland Australia's departments with relevant insights and analyses. Now, the presence of Kaufland will put further pressure on the profit margins of Coles and Woolworths, which have been shrinking as another German retailer, Aldi, keeps expanding its operations in Australia. Well, Kaufland's going to change everything again. Uh, that's right. And finally, ANZ Bank is the latest bank to exit wealth management and has offloaded its advice businesses to IWF for just under $1 billion. And ANZ will receive $975 million in cash for its one-path pension and investments business along with four aligned dealer groups. And the sale comes after the Commonwealth Bank of Australia sold its troubled life insurance good division Cominsure to Hong Kong-based AIA for $3.8 billion. So there's a big trend happening in banking. The banks are getting out of financial advising. And they're focusing much more now on retail banking, on business banking. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Manjua Wijeskera from Wavelink. They're cybersecurity experts. So that'll be good, great to listen to. In the meantime, you catch us on Twitter at Talking Biz, we are double Z, or on Facebook. Looking forward to talking to you again next week.